0: Good morning again. Uh, it's good to see you. Really glad you're with us if you're a first-time visitor, if you're in town visiting family or friends. It's really good uh, to have you with us this morning. Uh, I missed being here last week. I was gone. Uh, I was uh, at a conference, a church planting conference down in South Florida uh, for church planters. Church conference conferences for church planters, if that didn't make any sense to you. Uh, and so it's for people who start churches, which We did 10 months ago starting Christ Central and it was just encouraging to be around other people uh, who were kind of the same stage of their churches and the ups and downs that come and go uh, with church planting. And uh, as I was at the conference and I was talking a lot about what God's been doing in our church uh, and reflecting more on uh, the past 10 months or really year and a half, uh, I've been really encouraged. Uh, I'm encouraged by what God is doing in the midst of this community uh, he uh, has been at work in some tremendous ways as we've grown uh, on Sunday morning attendance. We've grown in membership. We had thirty-five people a few weeks ago th- go through our discovery class, which is our new members class. Uh, we have five city groups with so over a hundred people in those things in the city groups, and I really believe outside of those metrics of numbers that God, as Timothy prayed, is uh, creating. A, a community of genuineness and authenticity and love for one another. Uh, I, I believe that. Uh, he's given us incredibly gifted people, very generous people in this church. Uh, and, uh, and so I'm thankful. I don't rejoice enough. I'm, I'm kind of a driver by nature, always wanting to see more happen and for us to do more. Uh, and just this past week I've reflected and, and th- thought, I, we just need to give God thanks. Uh, and give God praise for what He's been doing in our church in the last 10 months. Uh, And at the same time, uh, this may sound contradictory, uh, I also have been uh, thinking and praying about we are nowhere near arriving. We're 10 months in as a church. We've nowhere near arrived. We still have so much more that we look to Jesus and the Holy Spirit to accomplish in and through us as a church. Still so many more churches that we hope to plant in this city and around the world. Lives that we hope are eternally changed. Families that we hope are healed. The light of the gospel shining in dark places. Brokenness restored. There There's so many things that we hope and we pray that we as a church can press forward in hopes that the kingdom of God will come on earth as it is in heaven. And by God's grace, may it happen here at this church. May it happen through Christ Central. So we, we pray and we hope, and at the same time we rejoice in the ten months that we've had together uh, and, and look forward to the years ahead as we are in the infant stages uh, of, of the church. But that's just a side note. That's not, nothing to do with my sermon. I just, as a, seven days away, reflecting and thinking and praying, we need to rejoice and that we need to hope and trust and put our faith that our God, Jesus, is the King who leads His church in triumphal procession. Amen. He is leading us. We trust Him and the Spirit to work through us and despite us. So this morning, I will now turn us to Psalm 73. Uh, we've been in a series uh, titled "The Psalm of the Heart." Uh, I think it's been appropriate that God has had us here uh, for this season. And this psalm has been a place where I've spent much time of the last eight years actually, Uh, in seminary this psalm really jumped out and God used it to minister to my heart. And so I'm going to ask as as our custom for you to stand uh, as we read God's word, uh, and then I will pray for us. Fairly long psalm, Psalm 73, this is a psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. until I went into the sanctuary of God. and Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord, when you arouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Isaiah 40 tells us, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let's pray. Lord God, I ask that you would come and speak, that we would enter, we would enter into the sanctuary, and we would see. That you would, by your Spirit, help us to have eyes to see, hearts that are tilled, that are broken up, that are fertile for your word to implant and bear fruit in our lives. Lord, give us hearts to understand and to receive and then lives to live this truth out. By your grace, remove me, God. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing. Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Well let me start by asking you a question. Uh, how do you respond? How do you respond when someone is chosen over you? When someone gets something you've always wanted, they receive it. When someone receives the praise, maybe that you've always hoped you would receive? How do you respond when those things happen? There's a story of two brothers who both wanted the adoration and the praise of their father. Their father asked them if they would give him a gift. And, and so the youngest brother went, and he sacrificed everything to give his father the very best. And the oldest brother, he gave up a little but held back and gave the father a good gift, but it, it wasn't his best. And the father came along, and the father praised the youngest son. And the oldest son received no praise. And the oldest son looked at at the praise and the adoration that this youngest son received and got really angry. (laughs) Really angry. So angry that he didn't receive the same adoration and praise that he murdered his brother. Murdered his little brother. That's the story of Cain and Abel, if it sounds familiar. Genesis chapter 4. God praised Abel, the youngest brother, for his sacrificial worship. And Cain, the eldest, got so angry that God did not praise him that he murdered his own brother. Now some might say that this major sin recorded in Genesis chapter 4 deals with anger. And sure, anger is involved in that, but it's really more about envy. It's much more about envy. Cain was green, green with envy as he looked at what Abel received and that he did not, so filled with envy that it led him to murder his brother. One author said that envy is no fun at all. Surely it is a sin in which people are least likely to want to own up to. For to do so is to admit that one is probably ungenerous, mean, and small-hearted. Envy means that one is probably ungenerous, mean, small-hearted. We don't talk much about envy, do we? I mean, beyond, when was the last time someone asked you about your struggle with envy? Probably been a while, right? Said someone asked you how you're doing with envy. Envy is the unspoken struggle that all of us face, one in which we even, we've inherited in our nature. Envy is no fun at all because to confess envy means we might just be ungenerous, mean, small-hearted. This morning we're going to address the sin of envy. It's what this psalm leads us to face. It's what the author Asaph, the author of this psalm, is dealing with. Now Asaph, he's the worship leader for Israel. He's the worship leader. He is the temple choir director leading God's people in the worship of God. Asaph, this man who leads God's people into the presence of God is on the slippery slope of envy. Now let me say before I get into envy that I am so thankful that God's Word gives us leaders who struggle, especially as one who's been called to pastor. I'm so thankful that we have people in the Scriptures that are God's leaders who struggle. The Bible is raw and as real as it gets, and it always reveals to us that the major hero character of every story in the Bible is always God himself. And that cheers me up. (laughs) Hopefully it cheers you up this morning as well. So let's look at envy, the sin we don't talk much about, the sin that I know eats away at every one of you and me. The first thing that I want us to see this morning is envy's impact on our relationship with others. What's the impact on our relationship with others because of envy? Verse 1 Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now, this is where Asaph is able to get after he struggles with envy. He's finally able to say these words after he battles with his own heart. And we'll come back to these words at the very end. But look at verse 2. It says, But for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I was envious. And then verses 4 to 12 is this description of the wicked and the arrogant of how Asaph sees them. Their bodies are fat and sleek. I mean, they're eating filet mignon every night and breakfast for morning if they want to, right? I mean, they're they're just living it up. So the bodies are fat and sleek. They're trouble-free. Their hearts overflow with folly. They laugh all the time. Always at ease. Increasing in riches. Asaph. Serving the Lord, leading God's people, he begins to compare himself with others, and particularly those who don't care anything about God. And in comparison with them and himself, he sees them, as one scholar put it, the darlings of fortune. Everything's just going right. Everything's going well for them. They've got money, they've got power, good looks, they're carefree, they're laughing their way through life. And then in Asaph's envy, it takes him inward. It takes him inward and he looks at his life in comparison to those around him. Now, let me say that again. Envy takes you inward. Envy makes you consumed with you, so consumed with you that it disables you from relationship with other people. Think about this for a minute. Think about something that maybe you've really wanted. Maybe it's a gift, maybe it's a promotion, maybe it's a husband or a wife, maybe it's just home, maybe it's recognition and praise, you just want people to recognize you. And then someone else gets exactly what you wanted, that gift, that promotion, marriage, the child, a new house, recognition, they get that, you've always wanted it. When you are filled with envy, you're green with envy, you are unable to rejoice and celebrate with that person. Because you turn inward and your focus and your question becomes, what about me? What about me? A good friend has defined envy as he, but me. He, she, but me. I think that's a great definition of envy. He, she, but me. Romans chapter 12, verse 15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. That's a definition of love. Love empathizes with others. If you're a loving person, you rejoice with those who rejoice and you weep with those who weep. You're sad when others are sad. But envy, envy weeps when others rejoice. And it rejoices when others weep. Envy makes you think that everybody else's situation in life is really all about your situation in life. Envy makes you so totally into yourself that you're unable to see that what is happening in the lives around, uh, around you and, th- and those of others does not always relate to you. Envy says, he, she, but me. But me. Another definition I love for envy comes from Fr- Frederick Beekner. He says, envy is the consuming desire to have everybody else as unsuccessful as you are. Envy... Is the consuming desire to have everybody else as unsuccessful as you are? None of you, nor me, want to confess to that, do we? That is ugly. That's nasty that we might rejoice at the destruction of another. But envy makes us so self absorbed that if we cannot have, then we don't want anyone else to have. And if they do have, then we're unable to rejoice and to celebrate with them. You know, the Bible is full. It is full with calls and commands to one another, to one another each other, right? To to love one another, to rejoice with one another, to listen to one another, to meet with one another, to encourage one another. Envy makes it impossible to one another. It makes it impossible. And if you've been coming to Christ Central Church at all, you've heard us talk about God creating us for community, that God created us for one another, that we might glorify God, by reflecting Him in the midst of community, envy destroys community. Envy turns us inward and we become so self-absorbed. Listen to my last quote, I promise. The last quote of my sermon. It's from C.S. Lewis. his preface to the Screwtape Letters. He says, The real mark of hell, of hell is the ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration upon self. We must picture hell As a place where everyone is perpetually, which means constantly, concerned about his or her own dignity and advancement. Where everyone has a grievance and where everyone lives the deadly serious passions of envy, self-importance, and resentment. Living with envy is living in hell. It's living in hell. It destroys relationships with others, the very thing we were all created for. Well, let's look secondly at envy's impact on our relationship with God. It's, It's impact on our relationship with God. Asaph, filled with envy, plays the comparison game. He looks around at others. He, she, but me. And then this slippery slope of envy ultimately leads him to turn towards God. Look at verses 13 to 15. He says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been stricken. What happens here with Asaph is really a crisis of faith. It's a crisis of faith. It's a cry, in some sense, for justice. Right? He sees the wicked prospering. Those who have no concern for God, they're fat and happy, powerful and successful, wealthy and carefree. And after turning inward and asking, what about me? What about me? He finally says, God, I've led your people. I have followed you, I have obeyed you, I have walked with you, and for what reason does it even matter? Do you even care that I have walked with you and followed you and led God's people? Do you care, God? Have you been there? Have you let yourself be honest enough to go there? I've been there. God, do you even care? Are you concerned about this? As I look around and see the world and I compare and I let envy well up, God, do you care? One of my best friends growing up in high school, he was the guy where it seemed like everything just worked out for him. You know those people where just kind of like everything just lands like in the right place for them. Everything goes just perfect, right? His quote: Our senior year in high school, in our senior year uh, yearbook, you know everybody has their their photo and then the quote underneath. Some of you maybe in high school had that. We did uh, in our high school. This was his quote: Always have a little money in your pocket a pretty girl by your side, and a smile on your face. And I swear it seems like that's always the case for him, right? He's always got a little money, he's got a girl on his side, he's got a smile on his face, right? If you are a Christian this morning, we have to confront and deal with this reality. Things are not always fair. Things are not always just, at least in the timing in which we might hope. I may not always have a little money in my pocket. And John Welburn may always have money in his pocket. A Christian family can get in a car wreck and their children can be killed. A non-Christian family can have a scare with cancer but then they're diagnosed as being clear from cancer. A Christian couple can be praying for years to have a child and to no avail. And then a 16-year-old girl out of wedlock can get pregnant the very first time she has sex. You might be trying as hard as you can to make money the right way, truthfully and honestly, and you see others around you who sell drugs, who steal, and they cheat, and they never get caught. And these things can lead us to a crisis of faith. God, why? Why then? God, where is your justice? God, have I followed you in vain? God, is this all for nothing? Now, I'm not downplaying the reality of being incensed by injustice. In fact, I think Timothy preached from when I heard a great sermon on God's heart for justice last last Sunday. God cares deeply about justice. But this psalm, Psalm 73, makes us confront ourselves. And the big question of Psalm 73 is, are you really wanting God to be just? Or are you wanting something you just don't have? Is your crisis of faith that some of you this morning may be in, really rooted in the truth, that you just want to be in charge of your life, that you want the sovereignty over your own life, that you want what you don't have, and life doesn't seem to be going the way you think it should go. See, Asaph's cry for justice, his crisis of faith, is really about envy. And a lot of the times, so is ours, because we're so self-absorbed. Life's about me that as Christians we can turn toward God and say, God, what about me? We want life the way we want it to be. We want to write a script to this drama of life that we're living. We want to be the author of our own story. See, envy destroys our relationship with others and our relationship with God because it makes life all about me. Well, where's the hope, Daniel? Where's our hope? And this psalm's beautiful because it... I mean, it pivots, it changes right in the middle of it and ends with incredible hope. How do we deal with envy? Look at verses 16 to 17. It's the turning point. It's the turning point in the, the heart and the mind of Asaph. He says, but when I thought how to understand this, right? he's looking out and he sees himself and others and God. He, he's like, it just doesn't make sense. It seemed a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. So Asaph enters The sanctuary of God. And it's there that his view of others and himself and God are reoriented. They're reordered. He enters the sanctuary and he leaves no longer wanting to be the author of his own story, but he sees that God is the author of the drama of life that we're all living. The sanctuary was the place of God's presence. The temple leader, the worship leader of God's people, enters into the presence of God and a dramatic shift happens. A reorientation, a reordering. Whereas before his view of the wicked, fat, happy, carefree, wealthy, powerful, successful. Look at verse 18. Now he says, truly, God, you place them on slippery places. They'll be destroyed in a moment. He now sees that God is a God of justice, and he will enact justice in his timing. God is the author of our life. And let me say, by the way, that, that reality that I just mentioned about God's justice is incredible news this morning. That God withholds his justice from those who turn from him. That God has not poured out his justice on everyone. That he holds back from those who may not be trusting him right now. Paul talks about this in Romans that it's God's patience that leads us to repentance. This is great news. For those of you here this morning that may not trust Jesus, those who are here and you may not call yourself a Christian, please know that God's love trumps justice. He wants nothing more, nothing more than for you to believe and to trust in Jesus and enter into a loving relationship with Him. He withholds His justice so that you might come to believe. So God, to ask you, to, would you let go? of wanting to be the sovereign author of your life. Let go of control and would you surrender to a gracious God who wants to lead and love you. Isaiah's view of himself also is reoriented. Verses 22, he says, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Before he's crying out, right? What about me? He, she, but me. And now he enters the sanctuary of God. And he's broken over his sin. He's broken over his arrogance and his ignorance. So his view of himself is changed and then his view of God is also reoriented. Before, God is this in vain. God, do you even care? Verses 23 to 26. Beautiful words. Look at verses 23 to 26. You, God, hold my right hand. What a beautiful image. Any of you with children? Any of you who've who've walked with a child, and held their hand. Our God holds us by our right hand. You guide me. There is nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Beautiful words. I heard a story recently about a Sherpa. A Sherpa is one who lives in the mountains. Uh, This particular Sherpa was in the mountains of Tibet, in Nepal, the Himalayans. And uh, Sherpas are rough and rugged, like could survive like zero degrees for like with no food for like three months type of people, right? I mean, they're, they're just rugged, they're, right? That, that's who they are. And this Sherpa was asked to, to guide this group of people up this 14,000-foot mountain in the Himalayans. And so he begins to guide them up this mountain, and, uh, and they get to base camp one right if you know anything about hike, hiking you can't go all, all the way up because you got your body has to acclimate and adjust and get oxygen and so they stop at base camp one and they sleep the night let their body acclimate well this sherpa wakes up early in the morning and uh, does what all of us would have to do at some point right he has to go to the restroom and this experienced climber uh, forgets to put his crampons on his crampons are the you know spikes in the bottom of your boots you wear when you're in ice or snow and and uh, and this sherpa forgets to put his crampons on and goes out to go to the bathroom go to the restroom and as he's going in the middle of the night while everybody's sleeping he slips slips and he begins to fall and slide all the way down this mountain And right before he's about to go off the cliff he catches himself on a tree and stops the fall stops the slide envy is a slide We can go from looking around to looking inward to ultimately looking to God and asking God, do you care? And God and Asaph, Asaph doesn't get stopped in his slide of envy by himself. He doesn't reach out and stop himself. He enters into the sanctuary and the Lord takes him by the right hand and holds on to him and stops him and graciously reorients him to what is true, to who God is and that God is the author of our lives. The sanctuary, the presence of God is the place of reordering. So, how do we deal with envy? We enter into the sanctuary of God, we enter into his presence. It is the place in the presence of God where we can finally understand and we see things for how they truly are. So, how can you do this? Christ Central Church, how can you really apply this, live this out? That kind of sounds nebulous. Enter to the sanctuary, right? Let me give you three things. Three things that might help you apply this uh, to deal with the envy that is in all of our hearts. The first thing is to look to Jesus. Look at Jesus. Jesus Christ became flesh. The fullness of God, Colossians tells us, dwelt in Christ. The presence of God came to earth. And you may be here this morning and you're skeptical of Christianity. We're glad you're here but I ask you, in the midst of your confusion and trying to figure things out about life and about Christianity, I ask you first to look to the life of Jesus. Examine his life, examine his love, examine his grace. Those of you who call yourself a Christian, and this envy of, and a cry of, what about me? It's a demand of entitlement, isn't it? Isn't envy a demand of entitlement? a demand from God that you lack and that God should give you what you want. But if we look to Jesus, which is what I'm calling us to do this morning, we will see that he has already given us the whole world. He has freely given us his own life. He owns a cattle of a thousand hills. And if we trust Jesus, we are joint heirs with Christ. We own everything along with him. The Christian who looks to Jesus does not envy because he or she sees that they do not lack anything. Jesus is all we need. Which then means you're able to genuinely be excited for others when good things happen to them even when it doesn't happen to you. The gospel of Jesus makes you free to admire and to celebrate the achievements of others, to love and rejoice with others. So look to Jesus, the presence of God dwelling here on earth. In Him you have, a, you have everything. Secondly, love the church. Look to Jesus love the church. Christ lived, died, rose, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and has given us His Spirit, and He has told us that His bride, the church, is His special dwelling place. Asaph had the temple, we have the church. When we gather on Sunday, God is present with us this morning in a special way. 1 Corinthians 3.16 tells us that. Now, we may not always feel it, But God has told us through His Word that this is true. And so we come together as a community, and we need one another. We need each other's stories. We need each other's encouragement, each other's gifts, each other's struggles, each other's confession. We cannot live the Christian life alone. And so we come together every Sunday, and we retell, we relive the story of this gospel that we believe. We reorder our lives around the gospel. Did you realize that we have purpose in what we do every Sunday morning? We're purposeful in why we do what we do. I don't know if you've realized that. We first hear God call us to worship. And then we sing, and we pray, and then we confess sins together. And then we hear God say, He forgives us. He pardons us in Christ. And then we hear God speak through His Word and we sing and we come to this table and we feast on the bread and the wine and we hear God speak yet again of His love and His grace to us. And with hope we leave as we enter into the world and we come back again on the following Sunday morning to retell, to reorder our lives around this gospel that God welcomes sinners who confess their sins and He gives us Himself in His Word and in the table, and He reminds us He is all that we need. He is all that we need. We live in a world where it's easy to look around, and it's easy to see other people prospering, and it may look like there's no justice, as if God doesn't care, as if it is in vain that we follow the Lord, but we come back together with one another as the church, and we're reminded that He's true, and He's leading, and He's good. Now, I chose the word love the church purposefully. Love the church. Because some of us like to date the church. <laughs> some of us like to flirt with the church, right? Maybe, maybe we like to kind of Christian hotcotch, right, around churches and, and play with the church, never really committing to love the church. Now, I'm not saying that has to be Christ Central Church. There are many great churches in Durham, North Carolina. I would love for you to commit to one of those churches. But I also would love for you to be a part of our church, our community. I would love for you to get involved. I would love for you to tell your story, to share your gifts, to share your struggles. I'd love for you to become a member and add to this body and to this family that we call Christ Central. We're just a community of people who confess our weakness and we boast in Jesus because Christ is all that we need. The church is a place of reorientation. Would you love the church? And then lastly, would you long for the day? Long for the day. Revelation 21, 1-4 to tells us the day when the presence of God will fill the entire earth. The new heavens and the new earth. God's presence will be from corner to corner. A day in which there will no longer be he, she, but me. No more envy, no more sin, no more struggle, but the presence of God will give us clarity to what is true that God is the author and perfecter. And we will know in that day, Christ is all that we need. So would you long for this day? Allow that hope of the day to reorient and reorder your heart and your thoughts. So as we look to Jesus, as we love the church, and as we long for the day, the slide of envy, which can easily well up within our hearts, can come to a halt because we come into the presence the loving and almighty and holy God. And then by grace we can proclaim with Asaph from the depths of our heart as we reoriented and reordered that surely it is good to be near God. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. Amen? Let's pray. God, I ask that God, you would help us to believe this. God, the world around us, it's so easy to think that that's true and that that is always what's real. But God, your presence reorients us, tells us what's really true. So God, would we be reminded this morning in our struggles and in our confusion and in our doubts in our cries for justice and our envy that you hold us by our right hand and that you guide us that our hearts must desperately need you. And you give us yourself freely. Help us to trust that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.